We are Rogue Media Sports. Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Bingo, 40 years in the NBA. That is the book. The author, Ralph Lawler. We're talking about a guy who called Clippers games for 40 years. He's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's got a place in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Spent 13 years calling games alongside Bill Walton. And he also saw the Clippers franchise through the entire Donald Sterling mess. And he talks about that and about the emotions that came up. Uh, for him during that situation. He is compelling. He is honest, and this is very entertaining. The book, one of the main things it talks about is little decisions in life that end up being seismic. It's a basketball book, and Ralph Lawler is an awesome guy. Usually, I do this from a studio in Texas, in Central Texas, in Waco. But uh, I'm back in uh, something you know all too well about. I'm back in Philadelphia because um, uh-huh, I got yeah. I got some family stuff going on. That's where I'm from. Um, great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent four and a half uh, great years in uh, in Philly. Oh, there you are. I got got the right button pushed. And now, and now, are you in, are you in Oregon now? No, I'm actually in Sarasota, Florida. We spent our winters here oh. and our summers in Oregon. So okay. we can model the good weather around. It works out really great. We're very lucky. And you and your wife, Joe, right? Yep. Right. Okay. I've been circling you for a while, my man. I was Uh-oh. in, I was, well, I did, uh, I did PR for the Hornets. Well, I did PR for the Bobcats and then the Hornets uh-huh. uh, when they became Hornets and then the 76ers. So... I've always, you know, now you only came to town once a year and I, and I traveled, but I never took the West coast trip, but I always remembered you were a Philly legend. Uh, and, and that yeah. you held the mic like this, right. And people yeah, can't see you held the microphone with one hand as you called games. And, and what did that, where did that come from? Well, I started off that way. Uh, you know, my early years out of really in and out of college, and I just thought it was a better way to broadcast games. Um, people are wondering why I did it. I just wonder why everybody doesn't do it. You know, if you, if you go watch a, a concert singer, uh, if they hit a big note, they're backing off from the microphone. Uh, the same thing, if uh, a big three-point shot or slam dunk is made, I can back off uh, as opposed to having that little tinny microphone right in front of my lips. I just think it's... Uh, uh, a more effective um, means of of speaking uh, in an athletic uh, atmosphere like that. Uh, so I, I never saw any reason to change, but I, I don't know why people get so used to wearing that damn thing, but they do. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you something. This is something from from broadcaster to broadcaster, right? Now I, I do I do play by play. I do I do some games um, when I'm lucky enough to for ESPN. I do some college hoops and. Uh, I notice sometimes I'll pop, right? Like you'll even even the best of sound guys, this little inside broadcasting, yeah. you'll pop your peas when you get, you know, and so yeah. with the microphone, I would imagine you can control that, right? You can go back and forth and you're not Absolutely. right into it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just I, I I think everybody should be doing it, but uh I'm not gonna win that battle, so I won't really fight it. <laughs> All right. Well the book uh is bingo, 40 years in the NBA. 
Uh, people can get it on Amazon, and we'll put all this stuff in the show notes. But when I saw, is it Santa Monica Press that you published yeah, with? It is. So when I saw the email from Santa Monica Press, I was like, oh, finally. I think guys like you who have been in the league for so long and just have such an incredible career, I, I think it's perfect that you, you chronicle the whole thing. And I want to start early mm-hmm. in your career. You're from now, you're from Peoria, Illinois. What were some of your early influences in broadcasting that kind of brought you along? I, I was really, really lucky because for reasons that nobody can understand, Peoria has been like uh, the birthplace for a lot of very well-known, very successful sports guys. Uh, it started off with uh, guys moving from Peoria to Chicago, uh, Jack Quinlan, uh, Jack Brickhouse, uh, were guys that broadcast Bradley basketball in Peoria, and they moved on to Chicago, where they were famous for Cub and White Sox uh, broadcasts for for many many decades. And then when I was um, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, the, the broadcasters in town, three different radio stations uh, broadcast Bradley basketball games same time, uh, which is you know unheard of in today's. Um, broadcast landscape, but Chick Hearn did one of them. Uh, Bob Starr did games later on. Uh, Tom Kelly uh, did games. They all moved to the West Coast. And I think Chick moved in about 1957, I think, or 58. And uh, I got out of school in 61. He'd actually broadcast some of my high school basketball games. But Chick went out to do uh, like USC sports and bowling for dollars and some, some crazy stuff on TV before the Lakers were even uh, on the West Coast. Then he winds up getting the Lakers job, uh, a trademark for USC football and basketball for decades. Bob Starr goes out, winds up broadcasting LA Rams games, uh, California Angel games, as they were known um, in those days. And uh, I got out of school and I, I got lucky enough to, to get an offer to work in Riverside, California, uh, about 50 miles inland from Los Angeles. And uh, I spent eight or nine great years there. And uh, but, but hearing those iconic broadcasts, Bill King was another one who did three I league baseball uh, in Peoria and later on Bradley basketball and became a, a, a huge hit a broadcaster in the San Francisco Bay Area, both with the Warriors and uh, uh, I guess the Oakland o- Oakland A's. Uh, so I, I had that was like a laboratory growing up <laughs> broadcasting. It's, uh, and it's and it's uh you know probably the most the best laboratory that nobody oh, yeah. ever talks about, right? I mean, uh, outside of guys like you, you wouldn't imagine it. Uh, and even Charlie Steiner behind you. At Bradley, it's it's amazing yeah. that you guys cranked out some real talent. So I want to talk about a guy who noticed talent in you, a guy named Irv Kaz. Uh, and this is when you're in Riverside, I'm guessing, uh, and an opportunity comes up to bring you to Philadelphia. And w- walk us through how that whole thing develops. Because you end up in Philly at a, at a real hot time to be here. You're part of – I grew up watching prison. Uh, you know, which we'll talk about. It's kind of, it was kind of like uh, the MSG before MSG, or maybe a little That's bit right. after. I'm not sure. Yeah. So, how did you end up in Philadelphia? What who and who was Irv Katz? Uh, Public relations director for the California Angels, and we carried their games as a satellite uh, uh, radio station. And so, I got to know Irv. And then in 1971, I I moved to San Diego. And Irv was then uh, the vice president of marketing and broadcasting for the San Diego Chargers. And he hired me for three years to do Charger games. And that's my job there finally got ended because the team, the, the, the radio, radio station was going uh, automated. And I'm hunting for a job. And I get this uh, chance to go to Philadelphia to interview for a job. And to me, Philadelphia was somewhere a block short of the end of the world. I'm uh, going <laughs> up there on the West Coast as a broadcaster. And I, I called Irv, who had worked in New York for George Steinbrenner and the Yankees, and they knew the East Coast marketplace. And I said, Irv, 
give me some reason to go ahead on this interview to Philadelphia. And he said, oh, God, he said, Ralph, he said, it's the greatest sports town on earth. You will love it. You'll be a legend there in 15 minutes. And I said, really? Philadelphia? <laughs> and all, all I knew, you know, the crazy jokes about I spent a, a month there one week. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I went back to the interview and I had a bunch of interviews, none of which – uh, resulted in the job offer. But this one was just one of those where everything clicked. They loved everything about me. I listened to his voice and all this stuff. I, I thought, wow, this is great. And they, they offered me a job, WCAU, uh, 50,000 watts, their channel station. At that point in time, uh, CBS owned and operated. So it was quite a move up from this little teapot radio station I worked at in El Cajon, California, suburban San Diego. And uh, the, the timing, as you pointed out, was unbelievable. Uh, winds up being 1974. And of course, in 76, the bicentennial year, Philadelphia was the center of the universe, so to speak. And we had the, the National Hockey League All-Star Game, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game, the NCAA Final Four was there. Wow, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know that. that. Yeah. Yeah. All in sync with the with bicentennial kind of celebration. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I was right in the middle of all of that. And uh, then they started this this prism, uh, which was kind of a sports and movie uh, pay per view TV channel. And uh, for reasons. You guys did it all. You guys did it all. You did, so, and you did Big Five basketball, uh, Sixers, Flyers, uh, and with the Flyers, you have a great story about you. You, you uh, I'd never the first hockey game you saw, you broadcast, <laughs> yeah, and a guy, and a guy who Philly people, if you don't know, uh, Stu Nahan was was in Philly for a while. He yeah. was the guy from the Rocky movies, uh, and Stu Nahan is one of your buddies, and you get with Stu, and you're like, I gotta do, I gotta do hockey. And he's like, all right, the day of the game, you guys have lunch, and he lays it out for you. Well, thank, thank God he happened to be in town. He was a good friend of Tom Brookshire, who was the TV sports anchor uh, at this Channel 10 WCAU. And so we have lunch, and I say, Stu, I, I, I know from nothing about this. I didn't know a red line from a blue line. I didn't know, you know a, a puck from a whatever. I mean, it was just uh, crazy. But um, he helped me through, or at least I, I had some of the verbiage that, that I could use. And the Flyers were such a, a hot team in the city in those days. They went back-to-back Stanley Cups, and I was in the middle of that. And the team was so popular, everybody thought I was great because the message was good every night. I mean, <laughs> uh, they, they were winning. Bobby Clark was sensational, and uh, Dave Schultz was beating everybody up. And uh, they were the Broad Street Bullies. And I could I could handle the fights, but I didn't have any idea what's going on uh, on on the ice in terms of the game. But nobody seemed to care. They just because every night it was an exciting night, and uh, I was a part of the excitement, and uh, I was very very lucky. Were you working for Ed Snyder, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. What, what did what did you think? What were your impressions of him? Well, very favorable because he he started this this prism thing. And uh, handpicked me to be kind of the, the face of of this operation, and uh, he was very very good to me. And uh, he was obviously a very successful owner and operator of the the Spectrum then, and uh, the Flyers hockey team. Uh, that it was the hottest ticket in town. Uh, uh, if you went to a Flyers hockey game, people, went, oh man, how'd you get that ticket? They had you know waiting list for for years trying to get season tickets it was great and, and snyder was a, a a great owner and a uh a terrific supporter for me and, and really helped propel my career so how about the sixers were you there the year that they lost to your buddy bill walton in in, in uh, portland and we'll, we'll get to bill and, and your relationship but that team was stacked dr j was basically ballet on a basketball court daryl dawkins uh, uh world free right Sure. I mean, uh, talk about that team. Did you, you were you called games for those guys? Like Kobe Bryant's dad, Joe 
Joe yeah. Bryan was, was, was on that team. Steve Mix, uh, Doug Collins, uh, Mike Bibby, uh, Caldwell Jones. Uh, they, they truly were loaded. It was the, the most talented team uh, in the NBA, and thus they got to the NBA Finals where they were, I think, solidly favored to beat uh, the Portland Trail Blazers. Uh, won the first two ball games in Philadelphia, and we thought, well, got this thing locked up. Yeah. We fly back to Portland and lose games three and four rather soundly. Uh, come home thinking, well, we've still got home court advantage, win game five, easy, and um, go back and wrap this thing up in Portland. Uh, it wasn't easy. Game five, Portland uh, beats the Sixers um, in Philadelphia. And now they have a 3-2 lead going into game six, which was the only really good competitive game of the entire series. The first four had been kind of one-sided. First five had been. But uh, it was a game, a great game. Julius Irving was at his absolute best. Walton was unbelievably splendid. Uh, Maurice Lucas and Lyle Hollins were on that team. Uh, they were coached by Jack Ramsey, and they were really oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, they they were they were too good uh, for for the 76ers, unfortunately, and uh, that was my first uh, up close look with uh, Walton and and with Jack Ramsey, who was uh, a marvelous coach and became a, a friend. And years later, as he broadcast for many many years in Miami. Yeah, now, can you confirm or deny? I always remember the story was that Daryl Dawkins ripped a, a bathroom stall. Or ripped a, ripped the urinal off the wall, either 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 at the Spectrum or in Portland after one of those losses. I, I think it. I think it was probably Game Five in uh, in Philadelphia, <laughs> uh, and and Dawkins was uh, not a key member of of that team. It was after Gene Shu left as the head coach that Dawkins' career uh, kind of blossomed. He was so young that Coach Shu was a little bit uneasy using a player that inexperienced when he had so many experienced players uh, on his roster. But uh, Daryl was a, a, a colorful guy. He was so much fun to be around. He turned 21 and we had a big party at a club in downtown Philadelphia and we televised it and I'm hosting this thing. And uh, I got nothing but happy memories about Daryl. Uh, uh, he passed way too soon. Yeah, I sure did. Uh, and and now your career is, is kind of, I don't know if it's right place, right time or whatever, but you get the opportunity to go back to San Diego. And and how does that whole thing come together? And, that was Irv Hayes again. Irv, who had uh, helped me so much along the way. Was he like, uh, did he at some point become like a manager to you or was he always just a mentor that yeah, knew you were talented? Just a friend and mentor. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm working nightly television in, uh, Philadelphia, which was who was who was the anchor when you were there? Um, Michael Tuck, uh, okay. Joan Dinnerstein, uh, okay. Ralph Penza uh, was there not very long, but he was there. Uh, I replaced a guy named Ted Leitner. I was doing weekends, and he left. And I got the full time job, and it's, it's the only job in broadcasting that I I didn't like. I I just I did not like the the confines of that studio. I did a five o'clock, a six o'clock and 11 o'clock show. After the six o'clock, he'd race down to veteran stadium to catch the first two innings of uh, a Phillies game, uh, shoot a couple of shots of Steve Carlson pitching or Mike Schmidt uh, batting, and then run back to the station and uh, try to put it all together and make sense out of it. But I wanted to be at the, at the game. So I, that's, that's what I love doing, being on the sideline and, feeling like you were a part of it and say you are strictly a spectator. Uh, I just did not like that. But anyways, I, I'm, I've got the job. and it was, But at that time, by the way, at that time, just to interject because I've heard you say this, that uh, you're getting paid 50 grand in like right. 1977. Yeah. And, and news anchors at that point in time, especially in Philadelphia, those were our celebrities, uh, still are. You know, Jim Gardner just retired here, who I know you're familiar with. And, yeah. you know, he'd he been on the air for – I mean, literally since I was born, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's it's just, it must have been a tough situation, I guess, financially and maybe, I don't know, like status-wise to take this job. You go back out to San Diego and you're not making as much money, right? Half as much. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely not making as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was Irv who called me, and he, and he kept calling that summer because they had this bizarre franchise swap that um, brought the team from Buffalo to San Diego, and they were christened the Clippers, and they named Gene Shu as their head coach. I worked with Gene for a few years in Philadelphia, and uh, this is he can you gotta come, you gotta come, and so finally. Uh, decided to make the move uh, back to San Diego. And uh, I always wanted to be like a team broadcaster. And it was just. Yeah, you like that. I've heard you say you like that more than network. Oh, gosh. I I, I just like feeling like a part of it. I guess my dream was to be a a player or a coach at the professional level, but was never good enough at, at either to do that. So, but, but you're a part of the team. You're, you're at, at all the practices. You're on the team buses, the team planes. Uh, it's it's just uh, as close as you can get to it. And the advantage to it, as opposed to being a player or a coach, is your career can go into your 60s, 70s, and 80s, in my case. Uh, your players are done uh, in their early 30s if they're that lucky. Uh, coaches uh, usually burn out by the time they get in their 50s or 60s. And uh, so it was a great opportunity, and I'm forever indebted to Irv Case for making that possible. Because without him, I wouldn't have had near the career that I had. But then you get out there, and and all of a sudden, this this career uh, is, gets cut short because I guess something happens where a, a new management comes in, and this is before Donald Sterling. I no, I guess it is Donald Sterling. He, he ends up buying the team, and then whoever the manager of the radio station is kind that's of sw- switches. That, that's it, right. And, and he called me in for a lunch meeting, and I think well, he's going to give me a nice raise. Said He said uh, – This is the manager of the radio station. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. said in, instead of a nice raise, he gave me a nice boot out the door because uh, they had a guy named uh, Jerry Gross on their staff, and Jerry had broadcast St. Louis Hawks games before and had – uh, an NBA resume, and they felt he was better known, and they wanted to use their own guy, and uh, so they did. And I was, I was out, uh, I guess, three years after I'd been in, and I thought that was the end of my NBA career. But then you talk about, and you mentioned this is a, the book has a lot to do with this. The decisions you make in your life, some of the the most minute, uh, can lead to seismic change. And that's what happens to you one day on the beach in San Diego, right? Yeah, you're you're right, Pete. It was. Uh, I think that's one of the more interesting things about the book. It is how those little decisions you make in your life are so important. Uh, early on, determining what you love in your life and make sure you 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 spend your life doing what you love rather than. Uh, you know, working because you got to make a living, but working because it's just a, a passion for you. And tr- try so hard as you're, whether it's high school or college or in your 20s, you, you just need to find that, that thing that just makes you alive. And uh, I, I go through that in, in some detail in the book. And then you're, you're gonna, always going to run into potholes, you're going to run into roadblocks. And the, the higher the roadblock, the bigger the reward on the other side. You just, you can't let any stop sign stop you. And uh, th- that was certainly the, the, the case with me. But again, the chance meetings you're talking about, my then girlfriend, now longtime bride, my sweet Joe, and I were, uh, I was house sitting this magnificent home. I was working in real estate because I was out of, out of broadcasting. And I was house sitting this magnificent. And how old are you at this time? Uh, About forty-three or so. So you're forty-three. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so we're we're house sitting this magnificent home on the beach in Del Mar, uh, north of San Diego, and we're we're hanging out and saying, "What beautiful Sunday afternoon!" But let's go for a walk on the beach. Uh, We could have turned north, instead we turned south, and a hundred yards down the beach. We run in to Donald Sterling and the young lady who was his uh, assistant general manager of the basketball team. And we see him down the ways and should we turn around and get the hell out of here or should we go say hello? <laughs> so 
Because that signifies your termination almost. The Donald Sterling era was the end of you called yeah, games. Yeah. Almost. yeah. So it's like, is this going to be awkward or what? Yeah. No, I, I had I had met him and 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 we knew each other, but uh, I never never worked for the Sterling Slippers at that point. So we continue our 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 stroll down the beach and um, say hello and uh, and I was, we're having kind of a good conversation. You want to come over and have a have some wine, get in the jacuzzi, and they go yeah. Because you told them you're at this magnificent house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we go and we sit in the jacuzzi and we're talking. And presently, he says to me, Ralph, why don't you work for us anymore? And I gave him the story about the radio station. And he said, well, we can change that. He says, call my general manager tomorrow. Uh, his name is Ted Podleski. And so I called Ted the next day, and I was rehired just like that. <laughs> uh, but that's one of the secrets. If, if we'd have gone north instead of south, I would never broadcast another game. My career would have ended at three years instead of 40 years. It, it just, it's just fascinating to me to look back at that and uh, go, wow. So. And so you get to the Clippers, and it's it's got to be such a wild ride. I mean, you know, the stories are endless upon Donald Sterling, and we'll touch on that a little bit, because you did sort of steady the ship. Uh, you say Doc Rivers did. I think you and Doc were two voices for the team in a time of just – Incredible tumult, but there was a lot of tumult, right? When you when you were there with the Clippers, some of those early years, and what what were some of the things that just jumped out at you? Like, okay, this is going to be a different organization. Well, what what, what was tough was the owner was uh, so disrespected by everyone inside the sport and out, by fans and non-fans, by media members. Uh, I used to do a a nightly half-hour telephone talk show leading up to our pregame show on a radio broadcast like Clippers in, in L.A. And more than once, like numerous times, the first call would be, hi, this is Ralph Lawler, you're on Clipper Talk, welcome. Hey, the owner sucks. And, oh, man. And it was downhill from there. I mean, you got 30 minutes of dealing with, with that kind of stuff. And when we first got to L.A., I'd, I'd wear a clipper cap and go to a drugstore, and people would say, what's a clipper? And yeah. it, it was it was just, it was it was tough. But you were in the NBA, which yeah. was great. Yeah, well, and I want to go through, I'm, I'm calling up a list. I, it's it's amazing, too, because just being a guy who's been a fan of the NBA for so long, you, you show up, I guess, in your first coach's jean shoe, then Paul Silas, then yeah. Jimmy Lynham. Uh, Don Chaney, uh, then Gene Shue again, then Don Casey. You know, we'll talk a little bit about Larry Brown, Bob White, Bill Fitch, Chris Ford, who just passed away, uh, being here in Villanova. It's just the list is amazing. But how many different coaches did you have? Shame on me for not counting. Uh, but do you know, have any idea? I'd say shame on, years? Not, shame on you for not counting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I have. Yeah. I have come up with that number at some point, but I don't recall what it is. But you've you've named a pretty good uh, list. Close there. to twenty, close to twenty. I mean, I'm yeah, looking right now. The list is close, yeah. close to twenty. Yeah, with a couple of retreads, right? Like, um, you know, uh, Gene Shue twice. But who was your favorite coach? Uh, just just to relate with, and, and a guy that you got a lot out of. Well, it's tough because a lot of those guys became and remain, uh, you know good close close friends uh i talked to don casey just a couple of days ago about chris ford's passing uh, as a matter of fact uh bob weiss is a, a very close friend uh lives lives down in the san diego area now gene shu is a lifelong friend who we lost last year as well silas of course uh has passed which is very very sad uh, Doc Rivers, uh, I guess to answer your, if I got to name one, I'll name Doc because we personally got along great. And I just thought he was a terrific coach and an extraordinary leader. Uh, Doc could have been uh, a CEO of, of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, he just had that kind of a, uh, a bearing about him that people immediately respected him. And he helped you want to be great. 
And uh, I just thanked the world of Doc, and he wound up uh, writing the afterword um, in in the book, which I really appreciated. Uh, he's he's an extraordinary man, and his Philadelphia team is number two in the East right now, and they could wind up being number one. Uh, well, I, I love you bring that up because I got so many idiot friends who are you know early in the year like, oh, we got to get Doc Rivers has lost five straight and he's lost the team, and it's great to have a guy like you. Uh, you kind of go a little beneath the surface. Not only is the guy a really good coach, but he is. I mean, what he did with you guys with, you know, the Donald Sterling thing goes down. Everybody knows about it. Um, you know, what it is, if you want to learn more about it, you can look it up. But the team and uh, the organization, who, by the way, is doing so well on the floor, is a complete disarray. The, the guy, I, I think Andy Roser was the president. He, he right. kind of gets swept away in, in, with the whole deal. So really the voice of the team is is Doc Rivers. No question and, about it. Yeah, and in that incredible, uh, incredibly terrible situation for you guys, I would think emotionally, how how, how was he able to steady the ship? Well, it, it's just that uh, that presence that uh, I mentioned he he has. Uh, it, it might that whole mess, and this is detailed in great detail in in, in the book, uh, hit me maybe harder than anyone because I'd been there since the very beginning. I experienced uh, more of being a clipper than anybody else had. And, and I was really shaken when secrets that, that we knew or suspicioned at least became public facts and the whole world knew. And people who were not sports fans at all, certainly not clipper fans, were hating this man. He was, yeah. uh, I mean, he was just for people who don't know, he was caught on tape saying racist things to his girlfriend at the time, who was recording basically everything he was saying. And it had long been rumored that he was kind of right, but so now it was everybody knew it was out there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he was one of the really hated men uh, in the country at, at the time. And we've had several to hate since then, but uh, he, <laughs> he was number one in 2014. And it was, it was just tough and I mean to have, have I wasted my my career working for this miserable man should I have left years ago I mean it's just all sorts of crazy so you things. you had to wrestle with it a little bit almost emotionally. oh I had to wrestle with it huge but Doc would come and put his arm around my shoulder literally and say it's going to be okay we're going to get through this Ralph just hang in there we're going to get through this and uh he, he kept us posted on what was happening in the negotiations for a uh, somebody to come in and purchase. Uh, he had his his favorites that he hoped would get it, uh, and and wound up being Steve Ballmer, which wound up being a, a tremendous shot in the arm for the franchise and for the city of Los Angeles, for that matter. Uh, but it, it was a tough period of days, weeks uh, before we finally got through it. And, uh, and was it? It was during the playoffs that it came out, right? Or was it right before? God, yes. The, the, the Clippers were up two games to one. They, they they split the first two games in Los Angeles, went to the Bay Area, and won game three to get home court advantage back. So we thought, okay, now we, we got this series. And uh, so game four was scheduled on Sunday afternoon, and I get up on a Sunday morning, and I check online, and boom, there it is. This whole thing is like the biggest story you know, on the Internet. Uh, about this tape that had been revealed, released the night before. And I'm, oh my God, this is the end of the world. And it, it just about was the end of uh, the world in terms of our little basketball world that we were, were living in um, at the time. The team went out and played that night, a game that they thought about just not playing. Yeah, not playing. And yeah. the Golden State Warriors said, if you guys don't want to play, we're fine. We'll walk off with you. So it wouldn't be like a forfeit. It'd be like both teams saying we're not playing. Uh, but our guys were not fit to play. I mean, they, they were so distracted and disheveled and uh, confused uh, that they lost badly uh, that game. Somehow, this again is where, where Doc uh, took that 2-2 series. is now a three-game series with two of the games we played in L.A. and won it in seven games. How they did that, I'll never know because – whether you won or lost, the headlines the next day were about Donald Sterling uh, being uh, banned, being forced to sell, 
more revelations about racist things that he had done. And it was just, it, it was, it was defeating. And uh, how the hell did you do your, your job that night? The first night uh, you come on the air because look, sports is the toy department, right? Oh, it's yeah. fun. You know, that's why you're, you're a happy guy. You had a great career, you know, like even though the Clippers maybe lost more than they won, um, they did, but I mean, it was still a, a blast, but now here you are, you've got to kind of be this voice of this organization. Who's not being looked upon favorably at all, because at the top, uh, is this guy who is bad news. So how do you do your job that night? Well, it was difficult. The, the, um, games were on Fox sports, uh, at the time. And they had said, we'd like to open not with our usual, you know, fanfare and all this stuff, graphics and music that they have like to open on a, on a one shot of you and like to have you do 30 or 45 seconds to explain what's going on in the setting and then say, okay, now let's, let's go play basketball and see what, see what happens here tonight. And so I, I spent some time, uh, giving some thought to this so that I could, uh, do it intelligently and, uh, in a way that, uh, the, the viewers would understand that, uh, we all were totally aware of the, the gravity of the situation, uh, and that investigations were underway that would reveal uh, what needs to be revealed. In the meantime, it's time to play a basketball game. They've chosen to play. So we're going to play it and we're going to show it to you. And, uh, but that, that was terribly awkward and the whole, the whole game was awkward. Uh, who was your analyst at the time? Was it Thompson or was it, was it, I, I, it must have been Mike Smith. I think Mike Smith. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, so we got through it as best we could. And, uh, Somehow, Doc got the troops together to to win that series, and they're up uh, in the next series against Oklahoma City, and and then it 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 just the guys were uh, worn out emotionally at that point, and they wound up losing a series that they had led three games to one, and uh, it it but that that series. Might have been, I think that was Doc's best team his first year. They won 57 games. And I, I think if it weren't for the Sterling mess, uh, they would have had a real chance to win a championship that year. I had a friend years ago, I'd get excited about a given super team, whether it was a Danny Manning team or with a Bill Fitch team or, you know, the early Blake Griffin, uh, what have you, the, El the Elton Brand, Sam Cassell era uh, ball club with Mike Dunleavy. Uh, I get excited, and he'd say, "Ralph, you will never win as long as Donald Sterling owns that team. You'll never win. Trust me." And yeah. I was like, "Right." So here we go, you know. And sure enough, Sterling found a way. Even then, with that terrific team that Doc had, uh, to to bollocks it up and and cost them maybe their best chance to date to win a championship. Any relationship with, with Sterling after this between you and him or just like no, no, yeah. I, I never saw him again. Uh, saw his wife a few times because uh, they, they, they allowed her to keep her season seats. Yeah, so that's – I was curious. I, I wanted to ask you about that. And, and now I want, I want to backtrack a little bit. Of, you talked about your, your career. Uh, we mentioned Smith, Michael Smith being one of your analysts, but I know your favorite analyst – with Bill Walton and Bill Walton credits his success uh, in life really uh, to you. And you try to, you downplay it and that's fine. But you talk about the fact that he was, he was a lost soul when you, and it goes back to the little things those those, what do you want to call it? Sliding doors or whatever. Yeah. You go into a seven 11 and, and you bump into tell if you don't mind elaborate there. I mean, and Bill Walton is a lost soul at the time. He's done playing. Bill was retired after having won a championship and six man of the year award in Boston. After he was traded from the 76ers in LA from the Clippers in L in LA. <laughs> and, uh, Bill didn't know what to do with his life. You know, his, his body was all racked with pain. He had a stutter and a stammer and, uh, he'd never done anything except play basketball, uh, all of his life. He'd gone to law school, but didn't get that quite completed. Uh, he was bright as could be, but uh, I guess he was in his mid-30s at that point. 
and uh, didn't know what, what the hell to do with his life. And again, one of those chance meetings you're talking about, and again, it was my sweet Joe and I walking the beach, this time Pacific Beach, outside of San Diego, and we're both thirstless. Let's go get a something to drink at 7-Eleven. So we walk in, and there's Bill in line. Uh, he, he'd been walking the beach as well and wanted a beer. And uh, so we have a little mini reunion uh, there at the 7-Eleven. And I said, well, what are you doing? So I have no idea. I, you know, I, I don't know. I got to do something, but I don't know what to do or how to do it. And, and um, I said, well, how about broadcasting? And, uh, or in his case, it'd be broadcasting. And he, he had never thought about that before, but uh, a testament to Bill, uh, he wound up getting some work done on how to overcome the stutter and the stammer. He wound up working for free on the old Continental Basketball Association, broadcasting games for free on radio. Uh, to get a feel for what 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 this job is is like, and uh, I presently was able to talk to Clippers and let's bring Bill Walton in. I mean, just Hall of Fame player, come be our antlion. They said okay, and so we only did like twenty five or thirty games a year on television in those days. They did radio the rest of the time, but uh, it, it took some getting used to with Bill because Bill. Uh, sees life through a different prism than most of us do, and uh, it's uh, it, it was it was awkward to to find the fit, but it took a couple of years really, and we we found something that that positively worked. We had the best television ratings that uh, the team has ever had from then, including today. Thirteen uh, years that you guys worked together. Thir- Thirteen years, yeah. Uh, I was in five as a player, thirteen as a as a broadcaster, and they are the most memorable, joyful years of my broadcast career and I guess my life. Uh, we developed a very close bond, and we got to the point where uh, you go to the arena, you get in the the media room, and you have your little pregame meeting. That Bill and I decided we're better off not talking to each other at that point, because when we did, we'd say something, oh, God, that's funny, let's let use that tonight. Uh-huh. And then you try to recreate it, and it lost its spontaneity, and wasn't any good, so we just say hi, hey, and that's it. And then we'd go out and do our thing, and uh, react spontaneously to each other. You have to understand, I totally believe the game is the thing uh, when you're broadcasting it. Nothing should detract from the game, but some of our games were just not compelling at all. I mean, you're down <laughs> points in the first quarter, and our job is to give the viewer a reason to keep watching. Uh, we owe that to our to our sponsors. We, we owe that to the team. Yeah. Uh, and so at that point, uh, you can say the game is the thing, but the game is not, not very compelling, so you better find a reason to keep people watching. And Bill and I were able to do that. And years after we stopped working together, because when he got onto ABC, they prohibited him from working for teams anymore. So we had to give up our relationship on the air, which was very sad for both of us. But we would years later, I'd be in in Boston or in Cleveland or in Orlando. We say, "Oh, guys, I just love it with you and Walton," because with NBA League Pass and mm-hmm. satellite, people were able to to, to watch. Oh, those were, those were the best. And Bill had the same experience traveling around the league. He said, "Oh, when you, when you and Ralph were together, those were the. It was uh, it, it was television magic as close as I could ever come to having uh, created it." Asking for a friend. As a play-by-play guy, how do you deal with somebody that is that chatty and that gregarious and that at any moment, any time, they will, you don't know what they're going to say. And, and they're going to do more talking than you. Well, I, I don't know if, if that latter part is the, the case. More memorable than I, for sure. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, And totally off the wall. But that was a part of what it took uh, a, a year or two to – to, to find uh, the proper niche for both of us. You know, how much of him was too much, uh, how much wasn't enough. Uh, and it, it, 
we just found a way that, that, that they made it work. We had such respect and fondness for each other that made it easier. Um, but uh, I, I just love the man so much and think he is so stinking bright. And <laughs> as bizarre as some of his comments may have been, uh, I acknowledge their bizarre nature and uh, we just found a way to play off of it and, and, and make it work. And it, it worked. Uh, what makes him so special? Because he's just such a special part of the basketball uh, universe. Uh, you've had, you had a front row seat to that for, for more almost two decades. Well, the, the NBA still realizes that and they're bringing him back to work on NBA TV on this, uh, uh, he and, uh, I Forgotten even who is the name of the announcer that he's working with, but they're going to be on on NBA. Dave Pash, maybe? No, no, it, it is okay. not a not, okay. not one of the well-known uh, okay. network guys. Uh, but they're going to just be sitting in a room talking about the game rather than doing a, a play-by-play color analyst uh-huh. job. And it's kind of like the, the Manning brothers have been doing on Monday Night Football. Sure. And. Um, I mean, and Bill's the absolute perfect choice for, for, for doing that. I mean, it's a, a great venue for I just talked to him a couple of days ago, and he's really excited about it. Oh, really? He's been doing a lot of college ball, not NBA stuff in recent years. So this is get some – Bill just turned 70, and uh, he has had uh, well, as much success as a broadcaster as he has as a player – and that's saying something. And the injuries haven't uh, curtailed his broadcasting career, uh, fortunately, or he would have been one of the greatest players of all time. I could talk to you forever about coaches and stuff, but a couple more things I, I want to touch on. Larry Brown, what was it like? Where, you know, he is I, – I, I had the opportunity to work with him in Philadelphia and in Charlotte, and I was always amazed at how he could just so quickly turn around an organization. And, and put them in, in a promising um, situation. Uh, what was it like working for Larry Brown uh, when he comes to town and he takes over the Clippers? I think it's like 1990 or around that time. Yeah, it was, it was the middle of a season. We had a season where Mike Schuler was the head coach and uh, things got so bad that uh, none of the players and none of his assistants would even speak to him. They were not speaking. I mean, he, it was just, it was awful. And uh, so approaching the all-star break, they, they let him go, uh, brought in assistant coach Matt Calvin as an interim coach for two games. Um, Larry was let go by the San Antonio Spurs, and uh, the, the timing was just right. And the, the team, despite the presence of Donald Sterling, made a, a, a bold, instant, uh, brilliant move to bring Larry in and um, he had coached at UCLA. And so, so he had like, like a mini mid season camp at um, my Pauley pavilion on the UCLA campus. And I was at the first practice and the team was a better team five minutes into that practice. than they had been when Mike Schuler had coached the, I mean, it just, it was instantaneous. Uh, he, he's Larry Brown is, and you certainly uh, learned to realize was stinking brilliant. Uh, He's a basketball savant. Oh, oh God, yes, yeah. I mean, I, I just and the, the no detail of the game. Uh, if a player had his foot angled the wrong way on a pivot, he'd say, "No, no, that should be two inches to the right." Yes, uh, and, it, and he said they said he sees everything. Like it's like oh, pretty much like a photographic memory. Bill Self, we were talking to last week before a Kansas game. He said, "I." He has an ability to just literally almost play back video in his head. He knows what everybody's doing on every single play after the play. If he were not so nomadic, uh, I mean, God knows how much even greater his career uh, could have been. Uh, So he just spent a year and a half with us and bam was gone. Uh, It was, it was a great day in, franchise history when he was hired it was a sad day when uh he he decided to leave because he just couldn't handle the donald sterling nonsense uh, any any coaches that came in um that were just you know who was the who was the one that even on the road 
it was just obvious that like something wasn't right here. Uh, you know, if there was any coach you feel comfortable to saying that about, because I just love this these old NBA uh, I, I'd say I'd say Mike Schuler because he just okay. got so sidewise with uh, uh, the rest of his staff and uh, and all the players. Uh, I mean, it was it was so. And, and Mike was a nice guy away from the court, but when you got him on a basketball court, he just became like this this madman, and uh, it it was really sad. He had a, had a wonderful wife, loved her to death, but this guy, I mean, and if you got him, you know, away from the court in a non-basketball setting, he was as charming as could be. And I, I know he said when, when he got hired, because he had this kind of a gruff re- reputation when he was in Portland, uh, where he had been a coach of the year, had the highest scoring offense uh, in the league, and they thought they're bringing this guy in. We're going to score 110 points a game uh, at a time when nobody was doing that. And uh, he said, "I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be that that gruff guy. You're, we're, we're going to love each other. You wait and see." And he was that way all that summer. And uh, the minute the season started, the first practice, he became this impossible to communicate with the human being. And uh, I. I guess he should have been doing something else for a living. <laughs> you, you, you've seen so much. What, what player, uh, you know, you talk about, there's so many guys in Clipper history who are, like a guy like Lloyd Vaughn, who was just great, and I know people out there loved him. Um, who are some of the better Clippers that really never got any credit for being great ballplayers because maybe they were in L.A. for too long playing with the Clippers. Um, by the time they'd gotten out of their, their career fizzled, you know, guys that you saw that were just kind of magical on a night-to-night that really never got the credit. Well, Danny Manning, who may have gotten some credit because he was a couple of time all-star, but uh, uh, Danny was the college player of the year, won a championship at Kansas, uh, came in, and unfortunately for him, Larry Brown winds up coming as the coach, and the two of those were oil and water. You think and the co- college and, you know, his college coach, you think it will yeah. work out. Uh, you, yeah. you think it'd be perfect, but it was imperfect. Uh, uh, I think of Brent Berry. Uh, Brent uh, was like all rookie second team with us. Uh, wound up winning some championships in San Antonio later in his career. But uh, Bill Fitch was the coach, and Bill was so hard on Brent. And Brent was not at that point in his life strong enough emotionally to handle but nonstop criticism. Fitch thought mm-hmm. Brent could be a star, and I think he could have been, but uh, it, it was not the right way to to, to treat Brent Berry, and it uh, it limited his career and growth. He had, a, he had a nice career. I think he could have had a, a great career. So I, I think he, among others, come closer to, to filling the uh, description that you gave yeah. me. How about the fact that you, you got to call all those Lob City games? You know, people talk about the fact that the Clippers were losers. But when Chris Paul was there, I think for six straight years, every game was sold out for, for the Clippers. Now, for you, that must have been such a special time. But that uh, in, in Clippers basketball is something that everybody looks upon so favorably. Yeah, that was in the average 50-plus wins a year uh, during uh, that streak. One year, uh, uh, Del Negro, and then when Doc took over and they brought in uh, Chris. Uh, I mean, God bless Vinny Del Negro. He, he won 56 games and he got fired. Yeah, and I, I don't understand why he never got hired again. I know he had a couple of interviews, but yeah. uh, he, he was at least a 500 coach in his couple of years in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. And, and led the Clippers to the, the winningest season in franchise history. And then was given the door. And he was uh, the guy that you, from what you saw, you know, got along with people, made it work. Oh, yeah. oh God, he was, oh, absolutely. I mean, he was. Really? Oh, yeah. The, the, the owner's wife loved him. I mean, he, he was uh, uh, just a good guy. And uh, he, he wasn't as good a coach as Doc Rivers, but few few are. Mm-hmm. But uh, to get fired because Doc Rivers is available is kind of a tough way to get fired. We just won 56 games. But yeah. I thought, sure, that some team would have picked him up. I mean, he's a big, good-looking, gregarious guy, presents himself great, always looks great. And uh, nobody, 
I, I don't understand it. Yeah, but those teams were, those Lob City teams were unbelievable. They, it must have been so much fun for you. Well, it was. I had, I'd had uh, Julia Serving in Philadelphia. Uh, and so now I got, you know, Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan, uh, you know, catching those lobs from Chris Paul, which is a pretty amazing situation because uh, they were on Sports Center, you know, like virtually every night that they played because it was one incredible slam dunk uh, after another. And I think I mentioned in the book the people at Fox uh, called us in for a meeting one time and said, you guys spending too much time talking about slam dunks. <laughs> go, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> this is the lobster clippers. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were the, 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 the toast of the city and uh, uh, developing a reputation around the league because of their ability to go places that most guys can't even think about going. Uh, but whatever it was, you know, it was a great time it was six uh, marvelous seasons and every single game that Chris Paul was a Clipper was in fact a sellout. And I, I think I heard on the TNT broadcast two nights ago when the Clippers beat the Lakers for the 10th straight time that uh, in the past dozen years, the best record in basketball belonged to Golden State. The second best record in basketball belongs to the Clippers. So this isn't like just they had a couple of good years. I mean, for the past decade plus, they've been one of the best teams in basketball. What's one of your favorite stories in the book, you know, without giving it all away? Something that uh, that you just think, you know, is a really good reason people should check this book out. That's a, a better question than uh, I, I can probably <laughs> ask with a, with a really good answer. Uh, so much of it is about Walton, uh, basketball what's, fans. What's what's the, what's the craziest uh, like story in there about Walton? Something where it was just like you couldn't believe what was happening at the time, but you both ended up better for it, or you did. This may not be a very fun answer, but it's a it's a an important answer. Bill is the most generous man I've I've ever dealt with outside of my father. Uh, Bill just can't do enough for people. Uh, you mentioned that he somehow credits me for giving him a, a career. You know, almost every conversation we have, and we talk a lot, is thanks for my life. Because <laughs> he, he thinks that his life after basketball <clears throat> wouldn't have happened were it not, well, not for me, but it was, had a chance meeting. It just, it just, it just happened that we wound up being together at the right time in the right place uh, and so on. But he has spent the last however many years that is, 30 years plus, uh, like repaying me. But it's not just me. Bill will call me his best friend, and I certainly call him my best friend. But I'll bet there are 100 people in this country who feel like they are Bill Walton's best friend because mm -hmm. he makes you feel that way when you are together because uh, – he has no focus aside from you when he's talking with you or when he's with you. He's not, not distracted by anybody else. He is with you. And that is a, uh, that, that's a rare trait for people to have. Uh, people now are looking look at their phone while they're talking to you, you know, and, and thinking about other stuff. And not with Bill. I mean, I called him right now. Uh, he would give me 100% or 110% of, of his attention. And uh, he just can't do enough for other people. He got a wonderful uh, little wife who's about half his size, <laughs> who keeps track of all of his appointments and all of his. Uh, Lori, he, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, she, she's a a wonderful partner uh, for him in in every possible way. Uh, we've traveled the world together. We've uh, shared. He took us on a on a on a tour of the Grand Canyon, a, a whitewater rafting trip, eighteen days, seventeen nights. Uh, you, you get kind of close, eighteen days, seventeen nights uh, on a raft and uh, building your tent. But uh, I am so blessed to have him as a friend. How close did you guys actually come 
to getting Kobe Bryant to come play uh, for the Clippers. Oh, well, it, it, it should have happened two different times. Uh, the year that he came out of Lower Marion High School, where you are there in Philadelphia, uh, this 17 to 18 year old Wunderkind, he came in and, and worked out with the Clippers. Elgin Bailey was the general manager, Bill Fitch was the coach. And both of them, along with their assistants, have told me it was the greatest workout they'd ever seen, ever, you know, pre-draft workout. said he was unbelievable. Uh, Elgin wanted to draft him for sure. Brent Berry was in the backcourt with a, it's going to be a salt and pepper backcourt. Kobe Bryant and Brent Berry is going to be oh, yeah. of the league, and it's going to be unbelievable. Uh, either one can handle the ball, the other one can be off the ball. Uh, and... Fitch decided that he thought Kobe was too young at 18. So he drafted Lorenzen Wright, who was 18 and a half, uh, who had a, a totally forgettable career and sadly lost his life. And he got murdered by his wife. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it was just a terrible decision. And because uh, he was he was the Clippers. Arn Tillman was his was his manager at the time. And Arm's first choice was that he goes to the Lakers. His second choice was that he goes to the Clippers because he wanted them in L.A., which is where mm. Arm was then um, stationed. And so it, it would have it, it would have been and then And then in 05 or 06, one of those years in the offseason, he was like, you guys were right there with him. He was a, an unrestricted free agent to be. He and Shaq were oil and water, just could not stand each other at that point, though they had won championships together. Uh, and so Kobe's a free agent. And again, the, the, the Clippers uh, jumped on it. And they had a meeting at a fancy hotel in Newport Beach. Uh, and the owner was there and the general manager was there. The coach was there, Mike Dunleavy at the time. Uh, Sterling's attorney, Bob Platt, was there. Uh, and and Kobe was there, and they had this meeting that went just great. And uh, and he's about to walk out the door uh, after this love fest that they had. Sterling, as he typically does, goes, no, "Are you really going to come? Are you really? Gonna, is this really going to happen?" In about that kind of a approach. <laughs> and Kobe said, "Don't worry, I'm a Clipper." and walked out the door. And they're thinking, oh, my God. And I get a phone call that night saying, we got Kobe. And I go, oh, my God, we got Kobe Bryant. At the absolute peak of his athletic career, I mean, just heading into his physical mm -hmm. prime. And uh, the next day, uh, Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, was in Europe on a vacation. And, uh, and Mitch Kupchak, the general manager, you better call Kobe. <laughs> and so Buss calls Kobe. And nobody knows exactly what was said in that conversation. But the next day, Shaq was traded. The day after that, Kobe re-signed. And, uh, I mean, he, he was in the team's hands. Uh, Dr. Buss, to his, to his credit, yeah. uh, found, found a way to, to say the magic words, which <laughs> I guess you I think is, look, I'll, I'll, I'll trade the big guy and it'll be your team. And uh, so they did. And they, they brought Lamar Odom in, who wound up getting sixth man of the year. And Chris uh, Shaq won, won titles elsewhere as well. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention your relationship with your wife before I, I let you out of here. Huh. Um, how long have you guys been together? Well, we've been together for 40 plus years, but we uh -huh. got married in 2001. And so, uh, but she, so she traveled with you, though. She traveled with the team. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing. That's unheard of. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Uh, I, I was the envy of uh, married broadcasters all around the league for, for so many years. I suppose some of the guys I'd like to get away from home, but most of them, you know, uh, it was tough to leave your wife and your kids and whatever and, and take off. But uh, it started off, Joe Wood, when she was still working, she had a very successful career of her own. That, that on, on weekends or on holidays, she'd, she'd travel with us. And uh, then she retired, I don't know, 
now 17 years ago, I guess. And so for the last 13 years that uh, I was with the ball club, she traveled full time and from coach to coach, uh, they would, they would approve it. Uh, and we were so lucky because she was on the team planes and the team buses. I mean, she was like, like the den mother of the ball club. Yeah. And probably a real positive influence to a lot of guys from a completely different walk of life. Oh yeah. I mean, Cap, Cap Mobley was always just so gracious and so nice and so courteous with her. I mean, it just, it was, it was a great experience for her, but most of all, great experience for me because I would not have lasted the 40 years if, if I were leaving her. I mean, I just, I just couldn't have done it. It would have been a 30 year career instead of a 40 year career. Uh, she's my guiding light. I mean, she, Bill Walton, Irv Kays, uh, a professor that I had, Hank Vander Hayden at Bradley University, are the guys that they they they're the reason I had a career. There's they're the reason that uh, that this book you know even exists. There it is. So the book is Bingo: Forty Years in the NBA. We'll put all the information in here, Ralph. I can't thank you enough, dude. It was really it was special for me to be able to talk to you. Um, and you know, I, I I'm I really appreciate it. Well, special as well. I wish you well. All right, thanks, Ralph. Appreciate it, man. Keep going. Mr. Lawler, before you go, can I can I say one thing? Um, I am a huge uh, San Antonio Spurs fan, and so um, every other team's announcers uh, tick me off. You are one of the only ones that, and I've watched basketball for 30 years. You're, you're one of the only ones that, that I always liked listening to. And so I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but from a Spurs fan, you're, you're a great announcer, and I, I really appreciate you being on this. I don't, know. I don't know about the great part, but uh, <laughs> along those lines, when uh, Phil Jackson was the coach of the Lakers, um, he told me one time what you just said. He said, I, I watch all video. They watch video nonstop. I watch all video with the audio off except yours. He said, I love it. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's that, – That's that high is, praise. Yeah. That, yeah. You know what I you, you know what I think the secret is uh, you you were never uh, a homer for your team. I mean you were you were just true about what was going on in the game, and and that was that that's a big deal because you listen to a lot of local uh, coverage and they are my guy is always wrong and his guy is always right and that's just it's not the case you know that's that's all I need so. Well, you're you're a Spurs fan, one of my favorite people on earth is Greg Popovich. He's a, a wonderful man, a great coach, but way more than a coach. He's a great, great man. I just well, love him to death. When Pete has him on here, I'll quit the next day. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so right, much. Ralph, it was a pleasure you meeting so you. Thank you so much, man. Okay, guys. Appreciate you so much. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. We are Rogue Media Sports.